We have been walking through on these Wednesday nights, we've been walking through chronological uh, look at the life of Christ. And, and the reason for this is we're coming to the new, broader, we're going to walk through the New Testament. But as we do that, we're going to spend some time. Remember, the four Gospels we have are not written in the style of a modern biography where everything is in flawless chronological order. The, the, the Gospels are written close, really, they're their own kind of genre. If you really want to go there literarily, if you're a grammarian and you're an English guru and you're in the literature, technically, they're really their own drama or your own genre, not drama. I guess they are their own drama. Uh, uh, they're their own genre. They most reflect what we would call an ancient biography, which is not focused on the chronology of events, but is focused on the character being presented, what they did, what they said, how it backed it up. And so each one of the gospels is written to a unique audience from essentially a... Um, an apologetic, or if you want to use this in a, in a very literal sense, an argumentative, not trying to pick an argument, but here's the case for why Jesus is who he says he is. And let, we're going to walk you through the evidence of all the gospels. Luke's gospel probably comes the closest to a true uh, chronological account because he, he states that. And so we're walking through, uh, remember, uh, in last, last week we, we did some background on how Jesus taught, what he taught, his key dates, and looked at his early years. So we're going to pick up, we're going to cover what we can cover tonight, and this is really going to be my aim. Uh, initially, I thought we'd maybe get through all of it tonight, and then I just decided we're just going to get through what we can get through, and we'll pick up after Thanksgiving, and we'll keep getting through what we can get through, and uh, that way we, we cover it well. So if you'll remember where we ended last week, Gospel of Luke uh, Jesus is born. Uh, you've got Matthew and Luke both give genealogies. Matthew's, of course, is through uh, Joseph. Uh, Luke's is through uh, Mary. Adam's, uh, Matthew's goes back to Abraham because he's writing to a Jewish audience. Luke goes back to Adam. He's writing to a Gentile audience, specifically Theophilus. Uh, you see the birth of Christ. You see, the, you see John the Baptist's birth. You see the birth of Christ prophesied. You see uh, Joseph's involvement taking Mary uh, at the angel's command. You see Jesus born. You see the shepherd, the announcement to the shepherds, the shepherd come and worship. You see Jesus' presentation at the temple with Simeon and Anna. And then we jump forward to when Jesus is about two. Uh, some wise men, some magi from the east, from Babylon, Persia, uh, come over. They've seen this star in the sky and they come over and they see and they come and, and seek out Herod. The irony being, all of Jerusalem's talking about these guys. Herod's guys know exactly where the Messiah is, but no one goes to see the Messiah except for them. They go see him. They, they don't go back to Herod. Of course, Herod tries to kill all the kids under the age of two, all the boys under the age of two. There's a flight. Mary, Joseph, and Jesus go to Egypt. After Herod dies, they come back. They settle up in Nazareth. Oh, yeah. I've got these maps again. Here we go. They settle up. Uh, up in Nazareth, up here. Uh, Jerusalem and Bethlehem are down here. They come back to Nazareth. There's the Sea of Galilee. They come up there, and we don't really know much other than this one instance when they go down for Passover. There in Luke, Jesus is 12 years old, and he sticks around the temple, and he's blowing everybody's mind with his knowledge. His parents are like, son, what are you doing scaring us? And he said, hey, I've got to be about my father's business. And then we jump. Uh, we jump in all the Gospels, we jump from that point to just before the, the public ministry of Jesus initiates. And so if you will, look with me um, at, look with me here, go to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1. 
And we're going to kind of jump back and forth throughout the first part of John and, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It says in John 1, verse 19, this is the testimony of John, uh, the Jew, and this is by John the Baptist, not John the gospel writer, but John, John the Baptist. When the Jews sent him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. Well, they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He said, no. And then they said to him, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us, what do you say about yourself? And he said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said, coming from Isaiah chapter, uh, chapter 40. So you have John the Baptist out, out in, the, uh, in the wilderness. If you go back over to Matthew chapter 3, uh, it says, uh, Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. The wilderness of Judea is this area out here. And if you want to know what it looks like, it looks like what you think a Middle Eastern wilderness looks like. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it, is, it is out there. Uh, Matthew's gospel says, where John the Baptist is preaching, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah, the prophet, when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make way, the, way the, ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. He sounds like he could fit in very well in Austin. He's eccentric. He stands out. And I'm surprised, I'm surprised that no one's tried to make a dime off the locust and wild honey diet. Of all the stuff that we will pull out of Scripture and try to commercialize, I'm surprised that that's never been a thing. Maybe it has, and I'm just too young. I don't know. <clears throat> then Jerusalem, by the way, do you know the, the hottest selling items at the Seattle Mariners baseball stadium? They, sold, they opened the concession stand a couple years ago. They sold out for the year in one month. Chocolate-covered crickets. Yes, that you didn't need that, but there you go. Uh, then Jerusalem, so then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, the district around the Jordan, they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Uh, so, what is John doing? John's baptism. What's leading up before Jesus comes on the scene is John the Baptist has has stepped up. He is preaching in a way that is that is reminiscent of the Old Testament prophets. And that's catching people's attention because since, since Malachi's ministry, 400 years prior, there have not been any prophets in Israel. There's not been uh, men preaching the, 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 the word of God and, and, and thus says the Lord. There's not been this. And so John's stepping on the scene, eccentric like this, out there, he's preaching something and he's calling them to what uh, John's gospel will be, say is a baptism of repentance. So what do we mean by a baptism of repentance? Well, one, it's, a, it's the physical act of baptism. And by the way, the word baptism is a transliteration. It's an, so there's translation and transliteration, right? And I'm just specifying this because I'm assuming you're not a grammar person like me. I know all this because I'm not a grammar person and I've worked hard to try to remember it. Translate is when you take whatever the word is in this language and find the right word in our language. Transliteration is when you take a word in this language and you make the English word sound like the original word. So baptism is from the Greek verb baptizo. You transliterated it. 
So when we think the word baptism, we automatically jump to someone's coming forward in a couple Sundays to be baptized. Now, as Baptists, we understand that to be by full immersion. But why is that? Because the verb means to immerse fully. That's what the Greek verb baptizo means. So you got people going out there to get baptized, to get a dunked in water for repentance. So what does that mean? Well, it's a symbolic thing. They're coming out. John's preaching a message. He says, the kingdom of heaven, God's kingdom is almost here. Repent. You personally need to repent of your sin. And so they're stepping forward saying, well, I want to be baptized as a symbolic act. The baptism's not saving them. It's a symbolic act as water washes over uh, symbolically cleansing someone. It's a symbolic act. It's also a preparatory act. It's a preparatory act. Look at what, look at what John says, Matthew chapter three, verse 11. As for me, I baptize you. I immerse you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandal, or as John's gospel would say, I'm not fit to untie the, 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 the knot of his sandal. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather wheat into the barn. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So here's what he says. He says, Right now you're coming out, you're acknowledging that you need to repent. There's the symbolic act, but what I'm doing is preparing for you because there's one coming. The one I'm preparing the way for, he's coming. And he's not gonna wash you with water symbolically. He's gonna wash you with the Holy Spirit, God himself. And it's not gonna be symbolically, it's gonna be transformation. And so this is what's taking place. And there's obviously, and part of, we won't, we won't read it, but if you, if you read the rest of the things on John the Baptist there, eventually you're going to have the Pharisees come out because they're hearing all the, the, the John's still in all the people. They're coming out and he calls them, you brood of vipers. Who told you? Who warned you? Why are you coming out here? And there's all of this fit. But as this is happening, keep your, keep your finger there in Matthew. And also go back to, to John. The next day, John 1.29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming to him. Let me back up. Keep your hand in John. Go back to Matthew. I jumped ahead of myself. Look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee. So at some point, here's the region of Galilee. Nazareth is technically in that region, this whole purple region, Galilee. Jesus comes down coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him saying, I, I have need to be baptized by you and you're coming to me. But Jesus answered and said, permitted at this time for in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. So understand what John's doing. Here's John's been saying, hey, one's coming after me. I'm not even worthy. I'm not even worthy to be the servant in the house who cleans the, the, the who takes his sandals which are covered in dirt and horse poop and this and that and the nastiness. I'm not worthy to even touch his sandal. And all of a sudden that one comes, John recognizes him, he gets in the water and John says, whoa, I need you 
to fix me, not, and Jesus says, nope, we got to honor the, the right way to do it. We've got to do it in fitting. And so it says, after being baptized, so John dunks him, Jesus comes up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and Jesus saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him and behold, a voice out of the heavens. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this is the formal start, even though Jesus' ministry won't be super public yet. We're going to see him go to the wilderness for a minute. This is the formal start of Jesus' public ministry, the coming down of the Holy Spirit. It's not to say that he was without, but it's, it's to show, it's a demonstration. This is the one, this is the chosen one of God upon whom the Spirit of God rests. This is a triune moment. By the way, if God is not Trinity, one God, three unique, distinct persons. We looked at that last spring. If God is not Trinity, then God cannot be incarnate Jesus as the Spirit appears as a dove while God the Father speaks. That can't happen if God is not triune, which means then if God is not triune, that scripture is a lie, and then you got to go down and undo the rest of scripture. And by the way, there's a huge movement today in certain circles in the church to reject the doctrine of the Trinity because it doesn't make sense to modern science. And it doesn't. You know why? Because there's not a single thing in the created universe that's triune. There's not a single thing in the spiritual universe that's triune. There's only one triune, God, and he's uncreated. So he is, this is what happens. Now look at Matthew. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So here's what happens. Jesus goes up and this is, so it's led by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God leads him. Now remember Jesus, fully God, fully man. We looked at it in Philippians that when he becomes fully man, he doesn't cease being fully God. But a Philippians 2 says he humbles himself. He takes his, his power as God, his divine nature, and he intentionally chooses not to live by his own personal possession of divine power, but as someone who is fully man to live by the power and direction of the Holy Spirit. And what does that do? That sets an example for you and I as believers. Because that's exactly how we're supposed to live, fully and completely dependent upon the power and movement and direction of the Holy Spirit to lead us, to guide us, to empower us. And that's what Jesus is doing. So the Holy Spirit tells you his first thing, Jesus is baptized. First thing leads him where? Not to the garden, not to the city, not to the place of great community and fellowship, to the wilderness where he's alone. And why does the Spirit lead him to the wilderness? To be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted Jesus 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. The tempter came to him. If you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. But Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Notice Satan's tactic. Hey, you're the son of God. You possess all power. Turn the, is there anything false about what Satan asserts there? No. Is there something false about what he implies to do there? Yes. And Jesus corrects him. How was scripture? Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Quoting Psalm 91. Is there anything, does, does Satan falsely quote scripture there? No. If you go back, he quotes it correct. He got his Awana's badge. Jesus, but he applied it falsely. And Jesus said, on the other hand, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
Then the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said, I will give these, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It says, then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister him. And I believe if you look, let me double check because I didn't plan this part out. I believe if you look in... If you look in Luke's gospel, the same account of Jesus' temptation. It says in verse 13, Luke chapter 4, Luke 4, 13, when the devil had finished every temptation, he left Jesus until an opportune time. So I, I point that out to say, this is not like, okay, well, Jesus in this bout in the wilderness faced every temptation a human can face and then Satan never messed with him again. That's not what it says. It says that, he faced every temptation there, and Satan would come back at another opportune time. It's just we're not recorded of what that interaction is or when that was or how it was. But what it does present is this. The book of Hebrews says two things. and In Hebrews chapter 5, it makes a strange statement to our ears where it says, and Jesus learned, Jesus was perfected. He learned obedience through what he suffered. And if you, if you just read that quickly. You're going to wait a minute, but I thought he already was perfect. He didn't have sin. What do you mean? And it's not saying he wasn't already perfect. What it's saying is the way that Jesus's obedience was demonstrated to be righteous was through what he suffered. His obedience was shown to be exactly that through what he suffered. And that's in chapter five. If you back up to chapter four, it makes this statement. If you're in Awanas or you went through it, you know, uh, the word of God is living and sharper than any two-edged sword able to pierce the bone between bone and spirit. Well, right after that, it says this, that Jesus Christ is our great high priest who has been tempted in every way as you and me, but without sin. So here's the reality. What this is picturing here, right at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, before Jesus ever shows up and starts preaching, he's already backed up everything he's, already, he's gonna be preaching. Before Jesus looks at you and I and says, submit to God, we'll look at that this Sunday, resist the devil, he's already demonstrated complete submission to God and resisting the devil. When you and I face a temptation, it doesn't matter what that temptation is. It doesn't matter if that temptation is to greed, to lust. If that lust is heterosexual or homosexual, it doesn't matter if there is a temptation towards some other form of sexual morality. It doesn't matter if there's a temptation to pride, to envy, to jealousy, inappropriate jealousy, murder, Jesus has faced every temptation you can face and I can face, and he did it without ever succumbing. Now, unfortunately, I think we tend to read that and go, oh, he did it without ever succumbing. Oh my gosh, how can I ever show my face? And that's the enemy. Because that verse in Hebrews 4 does not say he faced every temptation as we do, yet without sin, so hide your face. No, the very next words say, so in light of this truth, with boldness and confidence, run to the throne that you may find grace and mercy in time of need. It's the opposite. If understanding how holy and perfect Jesus's life as a man was drives you away from Christ, you are actively listening to the enemy. 
understanding that Jesus faced every temptation as we are, yet without sin, understood correctly, should cause us to run. Like if my daughter showed up at those doors right now, she would look like she's running to me and run straight past to those stairs that she loves. And she wouldn't think twice that there's a hundred some odd people in here and we're in the middle of Bible study. Because with boldness and confidence of a pure-hearted, simplistic, childlike mind, boom, she bolts. And that's how we're to bolt to Christ when we face temptation to find grace that is greater and mercy in time of need. Why? Because we have never been tempted, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, by any temptation that is uncommon to any human being. But as with every temptation, there is a way of escape given by God in Christ that we would be able to endure. Why? Because Jesus faced temptation. By the way, I'll just also draw you to this. If you look back at Matthew chapter four, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness. Understand sometimes you're gonna follow the Holy Spirit. Now, don't misunderstand me. You're gonna follow the Holy Spirit sometimes and sometimes in God's plan for your life, the Holy Spirit's gonna lead you into seasons where you're lonely. And your loneliness isn't gonna be because the church isn't doing its job and it's not gonna be because this or that. It's gonna be because God has led you to a place of wilderness to test you. It's there. If he did it in the life of Christ, don't you dare think you're gonna escape that. Now, don't misunderstand me. If you go, well, pastor, the, I haven't shown up at church in a year because the Holy Spirit told me not to go to church. Well, that's not true because the Holy Spirit said in his scripture not to neglect coming to church. But understand, there's gonna be times, even when you've got community around you, when you don't, there's gonna be times the Spirit leads you into a place and through a place where it's lonely. Because even with really good godly community, we can make an idol out of really good godly community to keep us from ever going and getting on our face and meeting with the Lord. And the reality is this. I think about this when, when I worked with college students. Some of those college students their security in Christ was based on who their peer group was and coming to church or going to breakaway and hearing their favorite speaker give this. But guess what? When they graduate and go to the real world, I don't go with them. So if their faith is dependent upon me for their security, it's about to get shattered. It's gonna be Christ who goes with them, who goes before them. Not only that, but notice this. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, which implies a lonely, isolated place to be tempted. Now listen, God, I saw it in James, God does not tempt anybody. But God may lead you through a season of life where he allows you to be tempted. And if he's allowing you to face temptation, it's because he's more than confident in himself in you and your ability to say no by the grace and power, by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit. So I give you all this to just say, when we face temptation, loneliness, when we face these things, when we find ourselves, if we capitulate to a place of hopelessness, we've not understood correctly the life and person of Christ. There should be unbelievable hope when we face temptation. There should be unbelievable hope. If you've got a battle with some kind of sin struggle right now, there should be unbelievable hope. Maybe a hard battle. There's gonna be days of victory. You may have days where you slip, fall, but there should be unbelievable hope because our victory is not based on any effort we show God. It's based on the person and work of Christ and look at his work and his life. He was tempted in every way as we could possibly be tempted, yet without sin. So this is what happens. Jesus goes out in the wilderness. Now flip back with me to John. John chapter one. 
the next day, John sees Jesus coming. So I guess technically this would not be right after the wilderness. It'd be right before. So Jesus, John baptized Jesus. The next day he saw, he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, behold. So here he is. John's out there. He's baptizing people and he sees Jesus the day after baptizing him. He yells out, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man with a higher rank than I because he existed before me. So here he is. He says, I've seen the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and he remained on him. This is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I'm testifying to you again. I want to point this out. So all of, all of Israel's in a, in a frenzy. You've got people flocking, for, it says, from Jerusalem, from Judea, coming out to John the Baptist. They're all engaged. They're all about his ministry. And John the Baptist is like, hey, that's great, but I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. I'm preparing the way for the one. And then here comes this moment. You can imagine crowds around and John's booming out. Hey, this guy, this is the one. Yet the majority of Israel will never follow him. And I highlight those things for us as you look at it in the life of Christ because there are so many opportunities when you work through the life of Christ for people to, to they're not at excuse for not knowing the truth. They had it said to him, you couldn't put it more plain on a platter. But they all missed it. And for us, we can get rushed up into a religious fervor and frenzy. We can have, whether it's a pastor, a mentor, a this person, a that person, go, look, there's Jesus, that's him. That's what it looks like to follow him. And we can still totally miss it and miss Christ. You can do that in salvation. There's plenty of lost people that have heard the gospel, have no excuse in seeing it, but you can also do it inside of a relationship with Christ where you're just refusing to heed the leadership and movement of the Spirit. Now, here's what's incredible. All of this picks up Look with me, John 1, 35. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus and he walked. And so behold, the Lamb of God. John's just going crazy. Every time he sees Jesus, hey, this is the guy. This is him. And two of John's disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Now, isn't that crazy? Crowds packed. This is the guy. And only two guys, two guys, that's it. Oh, that, that's the guy? Okay, great. We're, we're, we're done with you, John. We're going we're gonna to go with that guy. Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you see. Hey, wh- what are you guys doing? Hey, well, where are you staying? We want to hang out with you. Okay, great. Come on. So they came, they came and they saw, and they stayed with him for the day. One of the two who, who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew. Simon Peter's brother. So Andrew of the 12 apostles, Andrew is the one that from what we know of in scripture is the very first to actually embrace Jesus as the lamb of God. Obviously the disciples are all gonna have issues as we go on. I'm not saying that this is his moment of salvation, but of the 12, he's the first to follow Christ. And when he found, when he found look, at what, and look at what Andrew does. And you'll see this pattern in Andrew's life in several places. He, 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 they spends his day with Jesus. And what does he do? He found first his own brother, Simon, and said, we found the, notice, Messiah. 
which translated means Christ. So just a reminder to everybody, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title, the anointed one, Messiah, uh, Jesus the Christ. Um, and if you go, that was, trust me, I grew up as a pastor's kid for many years just thinking it was his last name. So uh, don't feel bad if that's you too. That's, that's normal for our minds when you see two names. Uh, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you're Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which translated is Peter. And then the next day he finds Philip and says, Philip, follow me. And, and then Nathaniel. And so all of a sudden you see, so you have this chain, it's this chain of events of baptism, wilderness, John calling him the Lamb of God. And these first, these first interactions with what will become four of the 12 disciples. Now in this, uh, let, me, let me just give you kind of the, the, the walkthrough of this very beginning period, what's going to happen. Uh, he's going to go, these couple, he's going to get these couple of disciples. Uh, he's going to go with them. Yeah, so here's the area that John is baptizing. By the way, if you ever go to the Holy Land and they take you to like the site where you can get baptized in the, in the Jordan River, um, it's this really pretty scenic place and it's right about here. That is not at all where Jesus was being baptized in the river. You go out to where John was baptizing Jesus in the river, there is nobody hopping in that river. It's out murky and nasty and all sorts of stuff. And by the way, also, if you want to know, uh, the Jordan River is freezing cold on New Year's Day. I can testify because I spent an hour baptizing people on the trip, shaking and wearing five different layers, and that's the coldest water I've ever been in. So just in case you know... Uh, it's cold up there because it's all mountain runoff water. But here's what they do. They're going to go up. They're going to come up here. And they're going to come up to, uh, to Cana. Here's Cana. Sea of Galilee, Nazareth. Here's Cana. They're going to go up to Cana. And of course, that's the first miracle. And remember in John's gospel, there's seven I am statements, seven miracles. The first miracle, Jesus at this wedding. A couple of disciples there with him. Uh, the wine runs out. He turns water into wine. And the significance of that is Old Testament prophecy said that in the day of the Messiah, the wine would run free. So it's not a passage. I, I know plenty of people who want to go, well, this is a passage. Let's talk about can a Christian drink, not drink. That has nothing to do with what this passage is. This passage is to try to specify and highlight. This is the first demonstration that Jesus is in fact the Messiah and he is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy because the wine is, is overflowing. And this happens up at, up here in Cana with the disciples uh, with these first couple of disciples. From here, he's gonna go down according to John 2, verse 12. Uh, he's gonna begin ministering in Galilee. He's gonna go down to Capernaum, which is over here. Uh, you can look on this map. Capernaum is, uh, wow, I need glasses. Uh, it's right here. There we go. It's right on the top of that purple blob, which I think is a fish or something. It's a, oh, it's grapes. That's because there's a uh, vineyard there. Um, He's going to go up there. It says he's going to, he and his mother, his brothers and his disciples, and there they stayed a few days. Now, when it says his brothers, by the way, because his mother and brothers were at that wedding, one of those brothers is James, whose letter we're now reading, who in the whole earthly life of Christ prior to resurrection thought his brother was a loon the more his brother said he was the Christ. And we know from after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to him and that's when salvation occurred. Now in here, there's gonna be the first Passover that John records and, and they're gonna be up here. They're gonna make their way down and they're gonna come down to Jerusalem to the temple for Passover. And in John's gospel, it's, it's a key moment. Um, it's a key moment here in John's gospel where uh, he, he's gonna go into Jerusalem. He's gonna find in 
the temple, they're selling ox, sheep, doves, money changers. And of course, if you've ever seen an Easter pageant, I feel like in all of our Easter pageants, they, the, they always got the flipping of the tables right. You know, and, and I almost got crushed by one of those in an Easter pageant. It was quite frightening. Uh, it made the scriptures come alive in a real way. But you can imagine, I mean, you think about right now, if Jesus all of a sudden comes in and we're in the middle of, of doing normal fellowship stuff and it's Sunday school on a Sunday morning and Jesus just starts coming and flipping tables and it'd be quite a scene. But we always forget this part that he actually gets some leather, binds it together and he makes a whip. He's not only flipping tables, he's whipping people and animals. This is a, this is, if you're really sitting there as Jesus comes in, this is, um, to say this is trending on Twitter, it's trending This is what's going on. Jesus is cleansing out because all of a sudden, the place, the temple, which is to be a place for worship, to be a place that helps all of these aspects of the temple and the sacrifices are all supposed to point, to expose the sinfulness of our own hearts, to point to Jesus. Jesus should walk in that temple and as he begins to teach, the people should be so studious and engaged in worship that they go, you're the fulfillment. That light standing there, you're the light of the world. That sacrifice, you're gonna be the sacrificers, but he doesn't. Instead, he finds them distracted by how much money they can make off each other and how they can pull one over on each other. And, and it becomes a den of thieves. Of course, the disciples, it says, remember that it's prophesied about the Messiah, zeal for your house will consume me. Of course, the Jews they, they react, well, who gives you the authority to come in and do all this and flip this? And, and Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it in three days. But it says he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered this, that he said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he knew what was in man. And it's in the midst of this celebration of Passover as he's down in Jerusalem for the first time that all of a sudden you come into John chapter three and he's meeting with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus and he have this conversation that will ultimately produce what will, be the, what will be the most widely known Bible verse in the world. It's gonna be in this conversation. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. So he's one of those who would have memorized the first five books of scripture by 13 years old, who would keep all these hundreds of commandments, both the written and the oral, the oral law. He's one of these, he's a teacher. And he says, and look what he says to Jesus. Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus just cuts through all the fluff. He doesn't try to get him. What are you? He just cuts through all the fluff. He says, truly, truly, I say this, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. He just cuts straight to the heart of Nicodemus. He doesn't try to go, yep, you're right. He says, look, you want to see the kingdom of God? You want to be about the kingdom of God? The only way you can see it is unless you're born again. Now, I think I've mentioned this in here. If you've grown up in, in, in um, American, uh, if, you, if, you, if you've grown up, especially in a Baptist church or a Bible church, the language born again, that's just second nature, born again. And maybe even for some who haven't grown up in the church, there's at least that phrasing that, 
But understand how, how truly, because you see what Nicodemus' response is. How can a man be born when he's, in, when he's old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? If you've never heard that, you gotta be born again. Yeah, you and I would probably be asking the same question. What kind of lunacy are you saying, Jesus? And it's helpful to, to notice stuff like that. Whenever I was growing up and we were working in Austria, um, which is a, a truly secular society in a way that not even America has arrived at yet. And one of the young men we were working with who we'd known for several years, who was asking a lot of questions, one of his big hangups over coming to faith in Christ was the absolute absurdity of the resurrection. Now, as an, as an American believer, that's just, what do you mean the absurdity of the resurrection? But if you have a truly secular mindset, the idea that somebody died and then walked out alive, never to die again three days later. That's, that is absurd. Doesn't mean it's not true. But it's absurd because no mere mortal can do that. And so when you see some of these things, trying to put yourself in their shoes, it's helpful to realize there's sometimes we just miss. And so Jesus comes in and says, look, I tell you, unless one's born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And Jesus makes it clear that if you want to know, if you want to be reconciled to God, that the message of the kingdom of heaven, that at the core of it, you can't just stay the way you are, the way you were born into this world is insufficient to get you in the door of God's kingdom. So what he's saying. There's gotta be a second birth. There's gotta be a transformation. There's gotta be something that happens, which is why when we preach the gospel and we're sharing the gospel with somebody, nobody can be born a Christian. Nobody can. Jesus says, that's great you're born once. That's not good enough. You gotta be born twice. Nobody can be born a Christian. If you are born into a Muslim family, you're a Muslim. According to, according to the Quran. But scripture's clear. Jesse was born into a Christian family. I'm, I saved at five and a half. Bethany saved at seven. We are Christians. Jesse will be raised in a Christian home. But until Jesse responds personally to Jesus Christ's gospel, she is not born again. Now I realize that someone's going to go, well, what about it? Da, da, da? Kids and babies and this and that. That's a great conversation. I'm happy to have it. That's not what we got time for tonight, walking through the life of Christ. It's a great question. But my point is just simply to say, because we've got a lot of people in other church denominations that just say, if you're born, you're a Christian. I can't tell you how many testimonies I've heard from colleges. Tell me when you came to know Christ. I've always known Christ. Well, according to Jesus, you can't have always known Christ. That's impossible. There has to be this moment where you respond to the Holy Spirit's conviction that you're a sinner, where you recognize that Jesus lived the life you failed to live, that he died the death you deserve, that that death secured a redemption that he's able to give you because he rose again and he's alive. A dead man can't give redemption, but a living man can. And he's alive and he's reigning. And this is what he speaks to with John. Now here's, here's the last two things, because I know we got choir, it's, it's got to get out. And I'll wrap here is this will set us up perfect for when we come back from Thanksgiving. I want you to see two things. One, uh, what's going to happen after this Passover is Jesus is going to do the strange thing of going back up to the region of Galilee, but he's going to do it through Samaria. Samaria, the Samaritans hated by the Jews. They are part ethnic Jew, but intermingled with other Gentiles. They, they worship a, a, a twisted version 
of what the Old Testament says. Uh, their, their origins go back to when the kingdom split north and south. Jews did not travel straight. They would take extra time and go around through the region of Perea and the Decapolis. They would not travel straight. Jesus does this crazy thing and he travels straight through. Not only that, but he does another crazy thing that a rabbi would never do. A Jewish rabbi would never travel straight through. He does another crazy thing is that when he stops at the well and his disciples go to get him some water, a random lady comes up and he talks to her. He shows her dignity. He treats her with honor. He treats her in a way that no Jewish rabbi would have treated any woman. Not only that, but he does another crazy thing. Because this lady has been married five times and is living with a sixth guy who's not even her husband. And if you walk through that exchange of Jesus and the Samaritan woman, you see the heart of God to save anybody who's willing to respond. No matter how much dirt is there, no matter how much shame is there, no matter how much you see the heart of God. So that's one. That's, and that's gonna set us up for where we come back after Thanksgiving. We're gonna pick up with the beginning of Jesus's, what, what will be Jesus's Galilean ministry which is gonna be a lot of the stories everyone's familiar with. But it goes through, to get there, you've gotta go through John chapter four and the, and the Samaritan woman and, and what that is. But here's what I want you to see that, that truly is remarkable. Look back at John three with me. Um, after these things, Jesus, so this is after the temple, Jerusalem, the conversation with Nicodemus, before he goes back up through Samaria. Samaria. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. And there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John was also baptizing in Anon near uh, Salem and there, because there was much water there and, and people were coming and were being baptized for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with, with a Jew about purification. And then there's gonna be this discussion. And it says, he, he, they came to John and said, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Here's what they're saying. Hey, John, we got this question. That guy that you said, hey, pay attention to, everybody's going to him now. Our ministry is starting to shrink up. What, what, what about that? What's going on? And he, John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it's been given to him from heaven. Ministry, that's, it's a gift. It's not mine to own. He says, you yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who is the, has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, I must decrease. That statement, every time I walk through, blows me away. John the Baptist has this huge ministry. People are flocking to him. He is preparing the way. There is something happening with him that hadn't happened in 400 years. Jesus steps on the scene and you just, I mean, you can see all the time. Once Jesus steps on the scene, there he is, there he is. That's the guy, that's the Lamb of God. That's who I'm, that's who I'm talking about. That's the one, that's who I'm unworthy to tie. He, all the attention John gives now to Jesus. And when his disciples come and say, hey, John, his ministry is really picking up. People are really starting to go to him and, and ours is starting to dry out. And, and John makes this statement. He says, you know, at a wedding, the bride, the celebration is about the bride and the bridegroom. And that bridegroom is overjoyed to marry that bride. The best man, 
It's not about him. The best man's joy is the joy of the groom. Seeing his, seeing his friend, seeing the groom rejoice with excitement. And what is he alluding to? My job, my ministry, my role, what God created me to do was to prepare the way, was to help prepare people's hearts to, to, to see the Messiah, to respond to the Messiah, the, the groom who is coming to rescue and save his bride. And he makes a statement, he must increase, I must decrease, which understand that on two levels. One, what a personal statement of humility. It's not about me. It's gotta be this way. He's got to take the lead because I'm not the Christ. I'm not the one people need to follow. I'm not the one that people have to flock to. It's him. But also understand it on a second level. If John goes, you know what? Dadgummit, I want my ministry back. Listen, John didn't just make a statement of personal humility but let's, let's, just, let's just be theoretical for a second, just for the fun of it. Let's say that all of a sudden, John tried to compete with the message of Christ. And let's say somehow that gets all the way to today. So you gotta pick between the church of Jesus and the church of John the Baptist. Well, one of those, church, one of those you'll find the message of salvation. The other one, you'll find a false gospel that'll send you straight to hell. If John doesn't intentionally decrease himself and accept that the time of his ministry is dwindling, there's, there's ministerial implications for people. And here's why I say this too. Any of us who serve in ministry, it is not about us. It is not about us. We live in a day and age, and I, and I see this with a lot of younger people, but I don't think it's exclusive to younger people. They just express it differently than the older people do. Everybody's got their favorite pastor whose words they live and breathe and dive by. Now, I want to be clear, church family, I have treasured and I am so grateful for the trust that you give me, for the way that you love and care for me and my family as your pastor but you don't follow me. And it's not about me. And you won't stand before me on judgment day. And I won't be able to give you any more leverage with the one whom you will stand before. It's not about me. This church having ministry that reaches our community, Lord willing, this church growing as more people are coming to faith in Christ. It's not about me and our staff and our ministries and our pastor, this church, my life, your life, our ministries. It is all about Jesus, period. Period. He must increase because he is the Christ. And our lives here together in our families, at our workplaces, it is to be like John the Baptist and go behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Mind-blowing statement from a man who had the pinnacle, was the, the preacher of Israel to all of a sudden no one showing up. And he was totally okay with it because he knew it wasn't about him. He understood what God made him to do and he was totally yielded to it because notice John's gospel, it's not John's gospel about John the Baptist, it's John's gospel about 
Jesus. So that's where we'll pause for tonight. Um, this will take us up. Like reminds you, he goes through Samaria. He's arriving in Galilee. He's got a couple uh, disciples, but he's yet to name the 12. And that's where we'll pick up when we come back on the backside of Thanksgiving. So just a reminder, next week is Thanksgiving. Hope you're excited. We will not have Wednesday night church. Uh, and, but everything will be back to normal here in two weeks. Sunday morning, we've got church. We're excited, ready to go. We'll keep walking through James chapter four. And uh, until then, love on each other, love the Lord, stay warm. And for those of you like me who like the cold, enjoy it. So let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your goodness. Jesus, it is all about you. God, and there are many subtle ways that the enemy is able to take the truth of ministry and serving you, sprinkle it with just a false little application, and all of a sudden my mind runs with it, and all of a sudden, before I know it, it is so easy to make it all about me. Lord, all of us have the ability to do that. And Lord, may we really understand it's not about us at all. We must decrease. You must increase. And Lord, may you increase daily in each of our lives, that, Lord, our lives in action and in word would be faithful and in a way that reflects your boldness proclaiming to the world around us, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Lamb of the world who was slain before the foundation of the world, who, who takes away the sin of the world. You are the only hope. Oh, Jesus, may we deeper and deeper love you. Because you are worthy. You are worthy. And one day we're going to see your worthiness. It'll blow our minds. And Lord, I pray that for each of us on the day that we see you face to face and we see just how worthy and glorious you are, that it would be as little of a surprise as possible because we have walked so intimately and faithfully with you now by faith. Jesus, thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.